Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We always want to be open to obviously minister to each other in that way. And I'm just going to say this as encouragement. Um, I was sitting there and I was, uh, Acts 19 is where we'll be. I was, we were praying uh, for, for Bethlehem and um, I was looking at my, my buddy Garrett and uh, he meets weekly with, with me and some more men for a Bible study. And I just want to let you know, like pastors are not immune to problems in this life. And this is public. He, they, uh, they shared it on <clears throat> with, with many people in, in a public sphere, but Garrett and his wife, Tori, they have twins, but they had a miscarriage two weeks ago and lost their little baby girl. And uh, so, you know, I, I say that to say, Garrett would want me to say to you this morning that um, no one in the family of God gets a free pass from trials and problems and sin and weakness. And this morning, if you're a believer, and it just seems like you can't catch a break, let me just tell you, as Peter reminds us, that what we're going through, other Christians in every place are going through as well. And you're not alone. And see, part of the reason this morning is, you may have heard someone share something this morning, and guess what? You're dealing with the same thing. And the encouragement, like, JJ, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Because there's somebody in this room that's dealing with that. And we hear somebody walking through cancer. We have families in our church recently that have just walked through that. And so you know what? We're going to get through it. Amen? Jesus is victorious. And so it's good for us to hear what other people are going through, to know that Christ gets the last word. Ephesians chapter 19 is where we are. We're going to be looking at 8 through 20 this morning. Justin got us to verse 7 last week. A great message last week. If you didn't hear it or you, or you uh, haven't been able to, you weren't here last week, you haven't been able to listen to it, listen to it. It's very important theologically we understand what's happening in the book of Acts. And uh, I know your small groups had, had fun discussions this week. On that title of the message today is Out, Out, Out. And that's because in our thought process through the book of Acts, we, we use the, the book of Acts or we use a, a way to understand the book of Acts with an up era, a down era, and an out era. Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down, and the church goes out. And so what we see in our passage this morning is this, really, it's one of the, the biggest places in the book of Acts where we see an outward movement, an, an outward movement on all kinds of fronts. But Paul's at work in Ephesus, and I would remind you, if you go back to chapter 18 real quick, this is the second time that he has been to Ephesus. If you go back and you look in chapter 18, verse 19, Paul came at the end of his second missionary journey. He visited Ephesus, and he went to the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews, and they asked him to stay, and he said, I can't. But notice what he says in verse 21. I will return to you if God wills, and then he left. And so he goes back down Caesarea. He ends up at Jerusalem. He goes back to the church that sent him out in Antioch. And what's amazing here is, is that God willed him, permitted him, led him to come back to Ephesus. Now, I'm doing it because it's a joke, and Justin 
janked on me last week, but there's a map that will go up right now, okay? <laughs> and there is a laser that I have been given by the Remy and Sullivan Small Group, and it will not put your eyes out. See, how much better is that? Amen. All right. Now, I would remind us, this is Paul's third missionary journey. Acts 13 and 14, his first. Acts 16 through the middle of 18, his second. This is the third, and this is what he's done. He started in Antioch like he did all the time. That just shows us that Paul's missionary work, check this out, was founded and rooted in the local church. Jesus did not die for the parachurch. He died for the church. And God will bless the missionary efforts of, of all people, but check this out. We should always make sure that everything that we're doing is connected to the local church. That's why we love what we're doing, what's happening in the DR, right? By the way, Craig's going to the DR this week. Y'all pray for him. He's going to see Wilfredo. It's going to be awesome. All right, check this out. You know why we love working in the DR? Because guess what? When we leave, guess who's still working there? Pastors, local church. Amen? That's why we love it. So he's sent out by the local church, and he visits through all these places that he's been. Now, what's amazing is you remember on the second missionary journey, he and Silas came to Fergia, and you remember where they tried to go? They tried to go in Asia. What happened? You remember? Chapter 19, verses 8 through 20. And he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing, underline this word, we'll come back to it, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. <laughs> but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. The Bible's good, and this is good. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, magnified. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of them all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Amen. This is God's word. Out, out, out. Throughout this passage, we see an outward movement. Whether as we're going to see first, it's going to be God's word, then it's God's power. And then it's really funny, in the middle we have like a reverse exorcism. That'll be fun in just a minute to get to. But at the end, we see that God's truth and God's light win out. So let's, let's look at this passage as we deal with Paul's ministry in Ephesus. The first out I want you to see is that the Lord's word moves out into all Asia. The Lord's word moves out into all Asia. As Paul would do when he went to these cities, he would find the Jewish synagogue. And if you remember, Justin taught us through this. He, his approach was he would reason and he would persuade them. It was a conversation. It was argumentation, not like to win an argument, but to engage and so prove by argumentation from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And so you remember Justin described it to us as like a Q&A, a back and forth that was very familiar in this culture. Not domineering, but not lacking boldness. I mean, being bold, but not just, you know, coming across rude. Listening, at the same time being willing and being able to respond. So notice this happens for three months in the synagogue. He was reasoning, and check this out, he was persuading. So what he brought... What he said was, was convincing. I've always thought about like when I share the gospel or when you share the gospel, why in the world would they believe it? And we understand there's a sovereign aspect to this, but on the human level, why in the world would people believe the gospel, believe the good news about Christ, if you and I share it in such a way that we're not even sure if we believe it, <laughs> right? And praise God, even in our weakness, and our frailty and our fear, God still works. Amen. Praise God for that. But notice it says what he was sharing. He was sharing about the kingdom of God. That, that means that God was ushering his rule and reign into this world through the person and work of Jesus. So Paul over and over again is trying to tell them the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. This is what Jesus preached you know, specifically in the gospel of, of Matthew, and Luke brings it out in his gospel. And so it happens for three months. Now, we know what happens in many of these cities. How did the Jews respond? <laughs> Eventually, the Jews will reject. And this has already happened at Corinth. This already happened in other places. And so Paul will finally say, all right, we're moving on. That's what happens in verse 9. Some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. Now, what did they do? They spoke evil of the way. The way is a term Throughout the book of Acts, that would speak about, it's a shortened way to think about the way of the Lord, the way of God, the, the fact that Jesus is the way. That's just a summation of Christianity because there's no term at this point that summarizes Christianity like that term hasn't been labeled yet, right? 
And so what about these people? Are they Jews? Or are they you know, Gentiles? Are they it's still developing as Justin taught us last week? What's going on? And so an early name for this movement that followed the crucified carpenter that came back to life was called the way. And so they're speaking evil of it. And notice they speak a little evil of it before the congregation. This would be like, you know, in a, in, a, in a worship service like this, somebody were to get up and whoever was speaking, they'd be like, that's wrong, that's wrong, speak evil. That'd be unique. Scripture's full of awkward moments. This would be one of them. But notice what Paul did. Paul withdrew. It was interesting. He didn't try to strong arm himself in that. He just withdrew. And he took the disciples. These, th- this is people listening to him. So we would, we would understand this to be now believers. And he reasoned with them daily in this place called, in a, the hall called Tyrannus. What that would be is it was a guy named Tyrannus, probably taught rhetoric or some type of, of uh, linguistics. And what's interesting is Tyrannus actually means tyrant. So this may be like a nickname that his students gave him. I mean, it's really funny. And it says that he reasoned daily. Now, there was a saying in Ephesus that more people were awake at 1 a.m. in Ephesus than 1 p.m. Because there was a, about a four to five hour siesta that they took. People would get up early, they would work till about 11 a.m., and then mid-afternoon they'd crank back up and they'd have a siesta in between. Some of your translations, because some of the Western manuscripts of the Bible even have the fact that they met between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. So what Paul does, Paul rents out a hall, And every day, check this out. This shows you what's happening in Ephesus. People will not go sleep and rest in the day. They will forego their routine nap to come and listen to this tent maker talk about the kingdom of God. That's good. It shows where the hunger was. It shows what God was up to. And notice it says in verse 10 that this, this practice of reasoning daily continued for two years. Now, Paul will will say in Acts 20 that his ministry in Ephesus was three years. So there was three months in the synagogue at least. We find out uh, at the end of this, I think it's in verse 22, that Paul stayed in Asia a little while. But the the real meat of his ministry, of this three-year ministry, was reasoning daily, engaging people daily, teaching daily, answering questions daily about the kingdom of God. I just wonder in my mind, how much of that are we doing on a daily basis? Like how many, how many like, you know, verbal conversations or spiritual conversations or text conversations about the kingdom of God and Christ are like active in our life? It doesn't mean that every day we got to open one, continue one, close one by the end of the day. All right, they're where they need to be. But, but what Paul's doing is Paul's keeping the dialogue open with all kinds of people in his life. That, that's what we should pray for. God bring people to me. Whether they get saved tomorrow, whether they get saved 30 years from now, keep the dialogue ongoing. That's what he's doing. But this is what I want you to see. Notice in verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Asia probably here means the province of Asia Minor, or the the province of Asia within Asia Minor. Kennedy, if we could throw up this one more map, just indulge me. So, what this would have been, here's Ephesus. Now, this is kind of like the western coast of modern-day Turkey. So earlier, you got, you got Turkey. This was the province of Asia. So Troas is up there, Bithynia is up here. But I want you to notice what Luke is saying. He's saying that in this two-year ministry of the Word, day-to-day, the Word began to leak out in the surrounding areas. Now, what are the cities surrounding Ephesus? You've heard of some of these. What about this one? 
Colossae. There's a New Testament book written to those people. Do you know what it is? The Colossians. It was probably during this time that a dear brother in the faith that we find out in the book of Colossians that was a, a, co-patri- or a, a co-worker of Paul um, took the gospel there. Paul, Paul talks about Epaphras in Colossians 1 and Colossians 4. Paul never went to Colossae. But how did the gospel get to Colossae? During his ministry, Epaphras probably left Ephesus and went to Colossae. Now, you'll start noticing some familiar terms if you're familiar with uh, the book of Revelation. Notice, all around Ephesus are really the seven churches that we find addressed in the book of Revelation, right? Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. At the end of Colossians, we actually have reference of a book, a letter that was written to the Laodiceans. We don't have, we don't have a copy of it preserved for us. Paul says, hey, when the, give the letter I wrote to you to the Laodiceans and you get a copy of the letter I wrote to them and y'all switch mail back and forth. The, the point is, notice, Paul says, or, or Luke says, that, that the ministry just didn't stay in Ephesus. It's going out. It's going north. It's going west. It's, it's going south. The, the gospel was never meant to be contained among the people who believe it. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Why are you here this morning? Because the gospel not only went to Colossae, it went west, it went to Europe. The Bible was put in English. Missionaries came. Somebody shared the gospel with your grandparents. See this movement out. Isn't it amazing how badly Paul wanted to go into this area just two or three chapters before, and the Holy Spirit said no? Because God knows best when the harvest field is ripe. And that's what's happening here right now. So let me ask you a question in light of we see God's word moving out. Here's the question. Who's going to hear the gospel from you? Who are you Epaphras to? Who who in your life are you really the only gospel voice? And that God has sovereignly and providentially brought you the gospel through a work of the Spirit. You're part of a local church who has the gift of the gospel. And God has all these relational bridges in our life throughout. And guess what? They're going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear it through you. We've been caretakers of the gospel, not just to hear it and believe it, but to pass it on to other people. God's word moves out. Secondly, I want you to see this morning that the Lord's power goes out through Paul, now this is wild, okay? Very important when we get to verse 11 and 12, we remember what Justin taught us last week. There are times in the Bible, particularly the book of Acts, that there is prescription or something is prescribed. There's other times where it's just descriptive, okay? When I'm, when I'm calling football games on the radio, I may describe a play and then come back with commentary and say, they never need to do that again, okay? Like that didn't work. There's a joke sometimes on air. We'll just say like, like third in Hebron because West Jones is so far back. Didn't happen much this year, thankfully, right? But, but you know, it, it just didn't work. So we're describing things. Luke's describing here. And he's describing what God is doing specifically through Paul. Verse 11, and God was doing, this is the word I wanted you to underline, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, if we read the book of Acts, how much that we've encountered, you would say, like by default baseline is extraordinary, right? 
I mean, we're going to read in a couple chapters, Paul's preaching, this dude falls out of a window, Paul stops his sermon, he goes down, raises this guy from the dead, comes back up, finishes the message. I mean, you know, Luke doesn't even call that extraordinary. I mean, think about that. Think about all the things we've encountered in Acts that are not extraordinary. And Luke says, hey, this is something special going on here. And what was it? The handkerchiefs and aprons of Paul that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. What are the handkerchiefs? See, the, the Greek word here denotes like a sweat rag, okay? So it would be like as Paul was going about his business, because he worked. He, he says later to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, you know that my hands, I, I worked hard. And what Paul would do, this was his daily routine. He'd get up early, he'd do manual work, whether it was making tents or something. Where he would normally take his nap, he would go to the hall of Tyrannus, he'd share the word, and possibly go back to work. And so there are these sweat rags that he wipes in his manual labor with. You know, you at your house, you've got like good hand cloths, and you just got like rags, okay? Like, and, and these would be the rags. And then the second word there, the aprons, would be kind of probably what, he, what, what you would put around yourself while you were at work to keep dust and other things, you know, from just coating you. This is the idea. And so what's happening here, people are finding these sweat rags of Paul, and where they're going and like stealing him, I mean, Paul might need somebody to, you know, buy more sweat rags for him because they're all getting stolen. People are going out and touching the sick and touching the demon-possessed with these sweat rags and these aprons, and they're getting healed and they're getting delivered. What is going on? Now, sadly, this passage could be used as a proof text for down the ages of the history of Christianity where people turned to relics and that God's power was contained in certain things. This is prescriptive, y'all. This is just Luke describing how God was working in an extraordinary way. Now, now, why would this be? Well, first off, he's God. He doesn't have to explain himself. Amen? He can do what he wants to. But you got to understand that Ephesus was a mixture of Hellenistic culture, religious practice. Next week, Justin will get us into the temple of, of Artemis and how the, the, the Greek goddess Artemis or Diana, this was where she was thought to be born. This was where they worshiped her. And so this, this place was filled up with crazy superstition. And people would wear amulets and, and these, you know, the, these um, like religious ornaments that they thought had power. And so check this out. Our God, in a very loving way, in a very short time, begins to meet them halfway to show them that his power is greater than any other power. See that? For a short time. And check this out. The miracles and the signs weren't to point to the sweat rag or the apron or the dude they belonged to. They were to point to hear the message that was coming forth from Paul. Now notice what it says in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul was the channel. That's all he was. Who was doing it? God was. For what reason? So they hear the message. I was talking to one of my mentors yesterday, and he had a really good statement. We were talking about this, this passage a little bit, and, and uh, he said, you know, there's a lot of 
phonies out there, and they're, they're not people that things happen through them. They're things that happen to them because they're the end of it, right? There was an old uh, preacher. He's with the Lord now. His name's E.V. Hill, and he said something great. He was calling out prosperity preachers, and he said, you know, you hear these people, and they talk about sow this seed and, you know, sow this financial seed and give this gift, and we'll send you a handkerchief. You can wipe your checkbook down with it. You can wipe, like, your house down with it, and the moment you do that, blessings will abound. And then he paused and he said, then they all also follow up with this statement. If you don't sow your financial seed, we'll be forced off the air. And Evie Hill said, maybe they should keep more of those handkerchiefs around their, their headquarters. You know what I mean? They should be wiping their own stuff down. You, you can tell, you can tell oftentimes what's legit or not, whether something comes through someone or to someone. Because at the end of the day, <laughs> to him belong all things right? To him and for him and through him are all things. To him be glory both now and forevermore. And what's amazing here is that God in, a, in, in some ways meets these people right where they are in their superstition. We've seen God do this in missionary history. There was a, um, there was a missionary named Don Richardson. This is a great book. I'm going to halfway spoil it for you, but not too much. It's called Peace Child. Read it. Don Richardson's called the Sowie tribe in the middle of the Pacific. He gets there and he finds out that the highest, <laughs> the, the, the most noble characteristic that they hold is treachery. To deceive your neighbor is the highest. That's how demonic this, this culture was. And so when they shared the gospel, or when he shared the gospel, they thought that Judas Iscariot was the hero. Because he was the most deceptive. Now, how are you going to share the gospel in that situation? Right? But he found out that in their, in their culture, they had this concept of a, of a peace child. When these tribes warred against each other, to stop the war, they would take a baby from one tribe, and they would exchange it for a baby of the other tribe. And these two tribes would exchange childs. And as long as the peace child was still alive, they could not attack each other. And Richardson started saying, there was a child that was given from heaven, and he will never die. And God gave him so that you don't have to be at war with God anymore. And guess what happened? Light bulb went off. And it's almost like this in Ephesus. God meets these people where they are. Not to continue in, hey, you need more sweat rags. Hey, you need more aprons. But our God, and, and this is just a picture of the incarnation, isn't it? That God comes down and he looks at all of our junk and all of our sin and he's willing to stand beside us and he's willing to get down and wallow with us to show us that he loves us, to call us out of the mire in order that we may know him. This is not a passage that tells us that we trust in religious ornaments. This is a passage to show us that for a very short time, our God met these people where they are. And then notice what we're going to get to at the end of the chapter. He's going to call them out of that, right? Which begs the question, y'all. Secondly, do we meet people where they are? <laughs> are we a channel? Are we standing over here in our Bible Belt morality telling people to clean up and come all the way 
told you this before, God cleans his fish after he catches them. Nobody can ever clean up enough to meet the demands of a holy God. That is why we come on the basis of his imputed righteousness, what he did for us. We need to understand that the gospel leads to holy living. The gospel leads to sanctification. But you and I can never meet a benchmark in order to be justified before God. We come with our filth and he gives us garments of, of complete righteousness. And what did he do with our dirty rags? He took them on himself at the cross and he had the wrath of God poured out on him. We gotta meet people where they are. Can't expect them to clean up. Jesus came and met us in the mud and guess what? We meet people in the mud. I don't believe that there'll ever be handkerchiefs or aprons that touch our skin that'll be healed, used to heal other people. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is, here's a man named Paul surrendered to the will of God and God's able to work through him. Justin taught us last week, Paul's special. He's an apostle. I get that, but check this out. There is no more Holy Spirit in Paul that's in you. Now, don't, don't go this week praying for everything you touch to do all that. But, but it can be this way. Lord, everybody that I touch and come in contact this week, could they have a sense of your presence, your holiness, your love, your compassion? Third, this is the fun part. Out, out, out. The Lord's name is magnified when a demon drives out religious pretenders. This is a fun passage, man handkerchiefs and demons and all this stuff. So apparently people know what's going on. <clears throat> Paul's the talk of the town. And people begin to notice that Paul is doing all these miracles, quote, in the name of Jesus. And so we're told in verse 13 that there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists. These would be people that walk around and cast out demons. Now, we come upon people like this in the Gospels. You remember, there was actually some people that the disciples saw casting out demons, and whoever it was, probably Peter, it's like, hey, hey, Jesus, we saw these people casting out demons, and we told them not to do it. They were casting out demons in your name, and Jesus says, hey, if they're not against us, they're, they're for us. And so the concept of Jewish exorcist is, is not uncommon. What these guys probably are is they are walking around in the context of superstitious Ephesus, calling out spells and charms in order to get rid of evil spirits. Now, what's interesting is it says in verse 14 that there were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Shiva, not Shiva, Skiva. Shiva is a Hindu god. I apologize. Skiva. We don't have any records in Jewish history from Josephus or others of a guy named Sceva. We don't have records of that. That didn't mean he didn't exist. He might have been a, a priest among the Jewish community, community in Ephesus. But as far as him being like the top dog at Jerusalem, we don't have any record of that. Some people have even said that if Luke was writing this in our day, another possibility is that Luke might say, and there were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skiva. 
There's a possibility that these guys were religious charlatans walking around using somebody's name or, you know, to get street cred. Because at the end of the day, the motivation here was probably financial gain. I do this magic trick for you, you pay me. And so they find out that there's somebody that no matter what the situation is, it's done in the name of Jesus and evil spirits are coming out and diseases are leaving. So notice what it says in verse 13, they start using in their exorcisms, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So check this out. In their minds, they thought that the name of Jesus was the magic word, was the secret password to get success. And so if we want to be up to date, if we want to download the latest update of what it means to be a good exorcist, we need to use the most powerful name that we've come in contact with. So let's use the name of Jesus and guess what? We're going to have success. Now, I find it really interesting in verse 13 that it says they undertook, meaning it was their idea. They did this. And so they come up to a guy in verse 15, and they try to do this. And, and they, they, so I don't know what, what it, it was inside a house, and they come to him, all seven of them, and they start telling the evil spirit, hey, you come out in the name of, the, of, of Jesus, of the Jesus that Paul proclaims. We don't know who he is, we don't have any connection to him, but magic word, boom, you got to come out. And the demon asks the question, who are you? I know Jesus, and the Greek word there is genosko, which is experiential personal knowledge. Like, I am super familiar. I know who Jesus is. And the demon is basically saying, I know who he is, and I'm under his authority. You know, he, he's more powerful than me. Now, I recognize Paul, meaning that evil spirit was aware of what was happening by Paul in Ephesus. I know Jesus, and I'm super familiar with Paul. Who are you? Now, I've heard this, uh, I've heard a couple stories in India of something like this. And there was, there was one situation where there was a demon-possessed person and these believers were, were praying. And this, uh, one of my real good friends in India told me this. I have no reason to doubt this story at all. And they were praying for this demon-possessed person, this demon had manifested. I'm not trying to freak you out. Like, that's a real thing, Okay. It's a real thing. And I think this story teaches us, check this out. We shouldn't be scared of evil spirits, but we should respect evil authority in the sense that we don't, that we don't just approach it on our, in our own power. See that? There's a, there's a morbid fear of Satan that doesn't rest in the fact that Jesus has conquered everything, including Satan. But there's also this, you know, just kind of like, huh, I got him. Uh, no, you don't. And so they were praying over this demon-possessed person. And the demon started talking, and I've been in those situations. And it's pretty obvious that that person's not there at the moment, and it's pretty obvious that that person's not speaking, just things change, okay? If you want to know more, just come talk to me. But this is what happened. This is the point. They were praying, and the demon started speaking, and the demon addressed one of the people praying. Now, this, this happened. Why are you praying? I know how you treat your wife. I know who you are. And the story goes, that guy like ran out of the house. Uh, Another story, a demon manifested in one of the pastor's family members, and he began to rebuke the demon, and the demon said, I don't have to listen to you. You're not a holy man of God. And then began to mention 
things. And so here's the idea, is that these guys, A, they, they, they kind of take it upon themselves to be like demon hunters, which is not a good strategy, okay? Like, we, we deal with Satan when he manifests himself, okay? Or evil spirits when they manifest themselves. We just don't go out like with an AR-15 on our back spiritually and be like, all right, I'm looking for something. Like, we don't, we don't pick fights because that, that's not humility, it's not dependence. When the fight comes to us in that way, we, we speak truth. Now, we go on the offense in sharing the gospel. Does that make sense? They undertook it themselves. Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And uh, as a footnote, the demon got seven brand new you know, pieces of clothes, you know? utter humiliation. They went in to cast, this, this passage is full of irony and humor too. They went in to cast out the demon and they're the ones that got cast out. And why is it? They weren't connected at all to Jesus. Check this out. They were simply trying to use Jesus as the means to their end. They were simply using Jesus to try to get what they wanted. And that begs the third question, y'all. Do we use Jesus as, or try to, I should say, as a means to our end? I don't know you. I know Jesus. What kind of compliment is this from a demon? Paul, in the demon's mind, is connected to the Lord of heaven and earth. I recognize you. Or I recognize Paul. I know Jesus. How incredible is that? The question this morning is, do we know him? Maybe the better question is, are we known by him? Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done mighty works in your name? And I'll tell, tell them, depart from me. You never knew me. This is like almost a deeper level of what Justin shared last week. It's not just like knowing facts about him and trusting that for our salvation rather than knowing him, but here's trying to do mighty works in his name and yet not know him. It is not enough in South Mississippi, to come to a worship service on Sunday morning, to occasionally read the Bible, to have kind of religious, respectful thoughts about Jesus, because that's not Christianity. Christianity says that we can know our God intimately and personally. We can be reconciled to him through his work on the cross. We don't trust Jesus to get us out of hell and get into heaven. We don't trust Jesus to get us out of no purpose into purpose. We don't get Jesus to, to get us out of misery into happiness. Check this out. We want Jesus because he's Jesus. And praise God, all those other things follow. But we don't seek him for what he gives. We seek him because he's him. And you know why the demon wins out in this point right here? Because Christ will never be the means to anyone's end. But notice how God works all things together for good in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, magnified. God used this crazy situation in order for people to say, hey, we just don't drop that name casually. We just don't see that name as casual. You see, when we say things in Jesus' name, we're not just dropping that phrase to say, okay, now God hears and will answer because we said code word in Jesus' name. You know what that says? You know what in Jesus' name means? Lord, I'm asking all this understanding that Jesus has all authority. 
And God, I'm submitting to who he is, and I'm submitting to the fact that you're in control of all things. And God, all of these prayers that I prayed, I am putting them all at your feet, and I'm asking you to answer them according to your will, for your glory, and my good, even if it's not what I want. Because check this out, I am submitting to who Jesus is by my prayers. That he's not just my genie in a bottle. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he will not be used. And so, word gets out in Ephesus. That is the name that is above every name. How's this passage end up? Fourth, I want you to see that the Lord's light and truth wins out over sin and darkness. So in this context of the superstitious, crazy, pagan city, and by no means is everybody saved. We'll see next week that there's opposition. And, but it says here that many who were now believers. So in Luke's mind, these are genuine believers. They're not confused, almost disciples like last week. They're, they're not people that need to be saved. He says, many who were now believers came. And notice what they were doing. They were confessing and divulging their practices. What practices? Magic arts, books, I wonder if some of these people like came to Christ, but they still had like all this hidden stuff in their closet and, you know, okay, if it doesn't work out, we'll go back to that (laughs) or plan B. But as the Lord does, we start realizing that in the metaphor of the Christian life being our house, the living room just doesn't belong to him. The bedroom just doesn't belong to him. The closets belong to him. The attic belongs to him. The crawl spaces belong to him. The basement belongs to him. The yard belongs to him. That he bought me with a price, and so he has the right to know and to point out and to deal of everything in my life. And you see, this is a great picture here, because what happens fourth is God begins to expose things in these believers' lives, and guess what they do? They deal with their hidden sin. That's what they do. Now, this was pretty costly, It says in verse 20 that when they came and burned all these things in the sight of everybody, it was found to be 50,000 pieces of silver. If you go off like the troy ounce, this could be somewhere around like, if it's a piece of silver that represents like a part of a a troy ounce of silver, it could be like $150,000 or so in today's currency. But if it's referring to like the drachma, which was one day's wage, it's basically saying when they all came together and burned their books, the total value of that would be in the equivalent of 50,000 days of wages, which would be in our day at $15 an hour, just as an average would be like $6 million. Isn't it interesting that they came and they confessed and they divulged? Because check this out, when your brother gets things out in the light because he wants to obey Jesus more than love his sin, guess what? You get a spiritual shot in the arm that I'm going to do the same thing too. And you know why a lot of times we're no threat to Satan? Maybe many times why we don't see people saved as a local church or as a church in a region 
why we're so spiritually impotent in the eyes of the world, it's because we got all this stuff hidden in our closet that we won't deal with. And if somebody would just say, hey, Jesus matters to me more than my hidden sin, and they would get right with God, and they would confess it, guess what? You would be the, the stimulus and the catalyst for other people to say, hey, Jesus matters more to me than my books. Jesus matters more to me than my sin. Jesus matters more to me than my pornography. Jesus matters more to me than my pride. Jesus matters more to me than me cheating all these people. Jesus matters more to me. Notice the summation statement that we have so many times in Acts. Here it is in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. But you notice how we got there. Boldness to share the gospel. Boldness to surrender. Lord, work through me. Not so that I'm the end of it, that you are. Uh, Boldness to honor the name of Jesus. A respect that I'm not going to use him to get what I want. I want him to use me for what he wants. And then a boldness to confront and confess and have secret sin exposed and deal with it. And so here's the last question. Is there anything in your life in the dark that needs to come to light? Anything in your life that needs to be confessed and exposed? To God, to others, to brothers and sisters. Maybe what's hidden in your heart isn't like a book of spells. It's a record list of bitterness and hatred towards people. And that needs to become, and that needs to be burned, and it needs to be confessed. And guess what? If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When we come and we confess our sins to the Lord and we confess our sins to each other, guess what? There's not condemnation. There's forgiveness. There's reconciliation. And all the stuff that goes through our mind about hiding our sin and continue to hide our sin, when we come to the light, none of it's true. Because guess what? God loves us and our, our brothers and sisters love us. You know what I'm thankful for about you as a church? When situations come, come out, we have far more people running to the problem than away from the problem. And that's a growing sign of church health. That when somebody sins, we don't turn around and blast our own. We run and we say, how can we, how can we meet you? How can we serve you? Yeah, we want to address things. And yeah, we got to call sin, sin. But guess what? It's not the end because Jesus can restore and redeem. I want to be around a group of people that runs to the problem and surrounds the problem with the truth and light of Jesus. So maybe this morning, man, something in your life, bring it to the light. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes them finds mercy. That's what the Scripture says. So as we think about this, man, what a challenging passage. What an encouraging passage that God's willing to use us like he used Paul. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we can hear the word of God this morning. Thank you that we can consider the word of God. Thank you, Lord that I see myself all over this passage just in need, Lord, in need of you, in need of your grace, in need of to be reminded that I'm not God, that you are, to be reminded that, I don't, uh, that you don't exist for me, that I exist for you. And God, I pray you would work in our hearts, uncover sin in our hearts, uncover selfishness in our hearts, uncover bitterness and hidden sin. And Lord, we would be willing to come and burn those things in the light in the fellowship of our brothers and sisters because you're worth it. 
Lord, (laughs) I'm so thankful that that we don't do those things to earn something from you. Lord, that's our response to you, that we love you more than our sin. Because of your grace that you've given us. Lord, for those this morning that are being like the sons of Sceva and trying to use you for their own ends, God, I pray you would call them out of that. God, we pray for the people in our life that are in our surrounding areas that don't know Jesus and haven't heard the word, that, God, you would use us, that the, that the word of the Lord, that all who are in Jones County, all who are in South Mississippi, all who are in our communities, here and everywhere, would hear the word of the Lord. So, God, I pray you would apply your word to our hearts right where we are. As we sit before the Lord and you've heard the scriptures this morning, how is God calling you to respond? Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus. You don't know him personally. The weight of your sin is upon you. This morning you can repent of your sin and believe the gospel and be made right with God. Justin and I will be at the back during uh, the song that we sing. will be available after the service. If you'd like to talk to someone about your salvation and eternal life, come, come please talk to us. We'd love to counsel with you. Maybe there's sin in your life that you need to deal with. We'd love to pray with you and counsel. Maybe there's somebody in this room you need to go to and confess sin to. You can do that. you got freedom to do that. He's worth it. He's worth it. Let's stand as I pray over us, and then we're going to sing. Lord, work your word in our hearts.